Good evening, everyone, and welcome to our 23rd Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data and Government, supported this month by Bright Data. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome you all this evening. Let's start in the traditional Data Bytes way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. We're very grateful to all of you for choosing us tonight over the lure of a certain secret agent at the cinema for opting for DB23 over an Aston Martin DB5. Yes, a venerable British series on its 20-somethingth entry that had to radically rethink its plans due to COVID. Tonight's Data Bytes brings you four more fantastic speakers Her Majesty's Civil Service with a license to thrill. I just know you're going to bond with them. We've had some brilliant data bytes and tonight promises to be another all-time high. When it comes to data-driven events, we like to think that nobody does it better. Let's start with the usual virtual housekeeping. Tonight's event is not for your eyes only. We are on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, the hashtag is IFGDataBytes and we'll be live tweeting from at IFGEvents. And if you'd like to put questions to our excellent speakers this evening, you're almost certainly already on the Slido page, which lets you do that. If not, go to the link on screen, bit.ly slash SlidoDB23, capital S, capital DB. Why do we organise Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show people, especially those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data means in practice, and put some interesting data projects on the record for us all to learn from. How does it work? You're going to be treated to four presentations on data this evening. Our speakers won't have all the time in the world. They'll have just eight minutes to present. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. I'll then put your questions to them for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next speaker. So four speakers, each giving an eight minute presentation, each followed by eight minutes of questions. Our previous 22 events can be found on the IFG website if you want to go rifling through the archives. Now, when we last met, we had some fun setting the initials of various data related organisations across government to Gilbert and Sullivan with the very model of a modern data doggerel. Matt Chorley at Times Radio enjoyed it so much, he asked the good denizens of Twitter to come up with song titles featuring Whitehall departments. We had national newspaper journalists, the head of a conservative home, even a member of parliament getting involved. There were a lot of suggestions. And more. And more. And even more. So this month, I thought I'd do another song all about the ministers at the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport and the Cabinet Office with responsibility for data and digital who stayed in place during last month's ministerial reshuffle. So here it is. Yes, inspired by John Cage's 4 minutes 33, this month's song is entirely silent because none of those ministers stayed in post. Julia Lopez moved from cabinet office to DCMS. Everyone else either moved to a completely different brief or left government altogether. That hasn't stopped DCMS getting on with all of the things, not least publishing a new mega consultation, 146 pages on changes to the UK's data protection regime. You may remember that a few months ago, we charted the word count of Dominic Cummings' select committee evidence against some classic works of literature and the national data strategy. We've made some space for the new data and new direction consultation. Where do you think it's going to slot in? 
Well, at around 61,000 words, it fits nicely between Lord of the Flies and Carrie. Again, I'll let you make your own jokes about the Downing Street operation. It's almost half the length of another topical work of literature, The Four Streets, the first novel by new Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, Nadine Doris. Her promotion was one of the big stories of this reshuffle. As ever, the IFG charted the moves as they happened. 18 of the cabinet stayed in post. Four left cabinet, three of them leaving government altogether, including Gavin Williamson. Finally, an end to taking all those Gavin must go headlines personally. Five cabinet ministers moved and seven ministers joined. But the most important story, the biggest controversy of the reshuffle, was the abolition of the government department with the best abbreviation, the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. Mahoka logo, no more. That's an abbreviation we helped popularise. It even made it into Hansard, even if it did make the department sound like a Mexican nightclub, according to the minister. Hashtag impact. The big question now is how to pronounce its successor, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. One of my Whitehall sources tells me that Luke is catching on. Not sure that has the force, really. There's luck, as in good luck with that, which if you say over and over, luck, 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 does sound like water going down a drain. The same sinking feeling you might get as the think tanker trying to define levelling up or a homeowner waiting for the department's ministers to sort out the cladding scandal. Or we could call it deluxe. Now, a surprising amount of the levelling up discussion at Tory party conference is focused on a new group of target voters, Lidl Tories. And it just so happens that Lidl's luxury range is called deluxe. Coincidence? Well, yeah, I think it probably is, actually. I'm not sure the government would deliberately draw attention to anything supermarket related at the moment when their former senior advisor refers to the prime minister as a shopping trolley. And we're all keeping an eye on how full those shelves are. Other supply chains may be struggling, but our supply chain of terrific Databyte speakers continues. First up tonight is Orr Lenchner, CEO of this evening's sponsors, Bright Data, on lessons learned from how the commercial world draws insight from online public data. Next up will be Andrew Engeli, Deputy Director at the newly minted UK Health Security Agency on the challenges of developing novel data sources in the context of the pandemic response. We heard about the publication of the National Data Strategy at Databytes 13 back in September 2020. Tonight we'll hear from Bethan Charnley, Head of National Data Strategy Implementation at DCMS on monitoring and evaluating the NDS. And our final speaker this evening will be Patrick Royce, Energy Engineer at the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy on the My 2050 Calculator for Exploring Pathways to Net Zero. Patrick will be our 99th different speaker at Databytes. If you're already sad about the prospect of a few weeks without Databytes, I hope you'll find a quantum of solace in the fact we'll be back next month. Remember, remember Wednesday the 3rd of November. And our last data bytes of 2021 will be on Wednesday, the 1st of December. We're only able to keep data bytes going thanks to the kind support of our sponsors. We are very grateful to Bright Data for sponsoring us again tonight. They previously sponsored data bytes 17 back in March when they were still called Luminati. So a big thank you again to them. If you'd like to follow in Bright Data's generous footsteps and sponsor data bytes, you can email my colleague Pratesh. If you'd like to follow in the footsteps of tonight's speakers or know someone who should, you can email me. 
As ever, we'll be having virtual drinks after tonight's event. We'll put the details back up again at the end, but the link is bit.ly slash db23drinks, capital DB, and the password is ifgdb23 with a small f. So it's nearly time for our first speaker this evening for his second Databytes appearance. We've never had someone appear three times at Databytes. Clearly, a Databytes presentation is something you only give twice. Between that and the Prime Minister's conference speech, there have been more than enough bad attempts at jokes today. So, or over to you. Thank you for having me at the Databytes event once again, Gavin. I'm thrilled to be here and as always enjoy Gavin's opening. <laughs> it's getting better and better. My name is Orlenchner and I'm the CEO of Bright Data. Before I dive into the possibly endless topic of insights from the commercial world, let me start with a small intro into the world's biggest, most extensive database, which is the internet. Here's a quick 60 second glimpse into our data generating existence with 4.6 billion people connected to the internet, meaning 60% of the world's population, it is no wonder that we are dealing with such a data obesity reality. 2 million video views on YouTube, 5,000 TikTok video downloads. These are unimaginable numbers and all of this happens in one single minute. Think what will happen in eight minutes generating mostly public data from all of this. With such numbers, it is easy to understand that the value that web data creates is simply reflecting our true real time, if not our near live reality. So who are we and why does the world need to collect web data at all? The answer is simple. The internet may be the largest database that the humankind have ever known, but it's definitely not a transparent one. Before I touch on this, let, let's talk Bright Data. We are probably the largest industry-leading web data collection platform. We make public web data accessible to all, the big and the small organizations. We serve thousands of customers, including Fortune 500 firms, from a variety of sectors such as e-commerce, finance, including banks, security, and even advertising. We have also established the Bright Initiative, which is a separate organization that uses web data to make a positive impact on the world. Today, we work with over 150 organizations under the Bright Initiative. Among them are eight out of 10 leading universities in the world. We're over 300 employees strong, spread globally. We had headquarters in Israel and in New York City. In 2017, we were acquired by a UK-based private equity firm, so has a special interest in the UK and especially in the NDS. Oops, sorry. Yeah. Um, just to give a quick glimpse into the Bright Initiative, here are some of the organizations we work with. Um, Sorry about that once again. Uh, among them, we're very proud to be part of the NDS forum that Betten will uh, no doubt talk more about later. Other partners include the UN, Princeton University, Oxford, and many more. Here are some of the use cases, such as Matheson, an American startup that promotes diversity within the workforce, or HDI Labs, which fights against human and sex trafficking. So if you need public web data to promote a valid cause, Feel free to contact us. 
As I said before, the internet is not transparent and to make public web data accessible to all, you need technology like Bright Data's. I like to use a highway analogy to illustrate this point. When you drive on a highway and see a billboard, if, if you want to if, if you want your own billboard to stand out in the crowd, you simply need to pay more and get a bigger billboard, right? In the world of the internet, that rationale does not work. This is because we all see a tailored internet reality. There's no one single billboard that stands out at any one, at one time. There are many at the same time. We all see different realities based on our location, our device, and our preferences. And yes, this is why you need companies like ours. In the commercial world, public web data comes into play in many ways. Whether it's to check your competitor's pricing, for market research, for product development and innovation, to, go, to get more background about a company you want to invest in, or even for closing huge sports deals worth millions. Many different kinds of companies all rely on public web data. It's important to state that it is estimated by uh, Statista that around 65% of data generated on the web is public, okay? contrary to some common myths. Now, many of the businesses using web data today use it for non-business related needs. For example, there's a growing need for ESG data, environmental, social, and governance. In recent survey we conducted with the leading firm Benson Byrne, we were surprised to see that over half of the financial firms surveyed said that they would change business decisions based on ESG data. And a staggering 95% said that they check for ESG performance metrics before partnering with a vendor. The most popular data set are environmental or diversity related. When the need for data massively grows, so does the need for the automated tools to support it. Public web data collection alongside customer service are the most popular use cases supported by bots. Bots are an advanced technology tool that are possibly the most misunderstood. They simply automate our actions and make us more efficient. In, a, in another survey we conducted last month that discussed bots and the need for regulation, almost half of those surveyed in very senior roles said that they have internal guidelines for operating bots. Equal numbers said that they want greater and more extensive bot regulation. And almost all, 95% said that they plan to increase the use of bot, bots within their organization. We need to pay attention to this. Bots traffic, as of other technology tools used for retrieving data, we need to be uh, they need to be regulated as, as the demand for data grows. We need to make sure that there is a working framework that supports it. To summarize, there, there are many insights we can draw from the commercial world that can be very helpful to the public sector. First, data clearly addresses the most pivotal needs of our time. Second, transparency needs to be at the heart of building any data-driven economy. The public demands it. Three, tools and mechanisms should be built to, to swift through the data obesity world we face and enhance transparency. This means control over the public's PII. And four, and lastly, all organizations should commit to responsible conduct and driving guidelines to address different data methods and processes. Thank you very much. I tried to address all the angles in just eight minutes.
Thank you very much indeed, or I think I think that was actually more like seven, so very concise. Thank you very much. Well, I owe you a minute from last time. <laughs> Excellent. Um, just a reminder, if you'd like to put your questions to or you can do so using Slido, which you're probably watching this on already. Otherwise, you can go to bit.ly slash slidodb23. Now, we do have one question, which is following my lead. What's the worst James Bond pun you can think of relating to your work? Um, <laughs> I might uh, I might like give you some time to think about that one while we while we go through the eight minutes of questions. Um, so the question I wanted to kick off with is obviously you talked about the sort of commercial insights that you gain and you ended with some sort of examples and and uh, sort of lessons for the public sector. Are there any parts of the public sector globally which you think are making um, the most of the insights that they can get from publicly available data? Um, no, but we see a lot of motivation. No, I'm kidding. So we see that. There's a growing need and understanding that public data can be used for pretty much anything. So just like what we've seen a few years ago, starting in the commercial world, we now see happening in the in the in some governments, especially in the UK. I have to say I, I know that because we're very much involved. So it's very uh, promising, uh, a promising trend the understanding and also the willing to learn from the commercial world because not, you don't need to reinvent the wheel uh, or to reinvent the methods for collecting data and how to use data or even you know you don't really need to think what data can do for you. You have almost every single commercial company in the world utilizing collecting web data for their own reasons. In many cases, the same data can also serve um, the governments, regulators, policymakers, and so on. So there's definitely a trend going on. Fantastic. Um, you, you mentioned a few times um, the sort of national data strategy here in the UK and the fact that you've been engaging with the National Data Strategy Forum. Where do you think the national data strategy will take um, this sort of work? Because it does talk quite a lot about sort of working across different sectors. Um, yeah, I'm actually very positive about that. And again, just from what we see, uh, and and the, the the huge motivation that we see that, uh, around what's happening with the NDS. Um, so if it's the roundtables that we participate and the, the advice that we give, and even if we're if we're being proactive, it's great. But we we also feel that um, you know they're coming to us and to the industry, not just us, asking for feedback, which is really amazing to see. I, I, for example, we're here, the headquarters in Israel. I don't see it here happening. So you can see that there's someone pushing it very hard uh, with real intentions to making it happen. And I believe that the plans will fulfill and it, it, it will happen. Even the timelines are you know, pretty solid and things are happening. Excellent. Thank you. Um, a lot of people will think that just because data is available in public, it's sort of there to be used and, and there won't be any concerns about, about sort of using it. But what what do you think the sort of ethical considerations might be in using uh, data that's already public? Yeah, so that's a great question and we get that a lot. First of all, there's a lot of confusion just by saying the word data. So everyone, all of the listeners, I'm sure the, the first thing that they think uh, when they hear the word data is private personal data. This is what we were educated for with the GDPR and with all of the regulation, which is a great thing, by the way. I, 
I think it's it's a great framework to work with. But as I showed in one of the slides, the majority of web data has nothing to do with your personal information. We're talking about prices of products, for example. Videos, um, not your videos, just videos, images, news, blogs. This is over almost 70% of the web data. And we're talking about 50 zettabytes of data. That's 50 with 21 zeros afterwards. And it's growing every day. It's going to be 250 in a few years. Um, so first of all, we're not talking about private data, at least not in bright data. However, it is a consideration, especially when you involve the word ethics in it. So there are a few levels of ethics or ethical consideration when you collect data. The first one, yes, it's the private data. Sometimes you post your own private data, for example, your email address on your LinkedIn profile. Okay, It's public, anyone can see it, but it's still your PII, it's still your personal identifier. Um, the good thing is that you also have regulation for that. So if, for example, we've collected public data and found out that we also collected your email address um, because it was there publicly, we let you know and we'll add a link in the email offering you to opt out because that's the regulation, that, that, that's the law. So that's that, that part is actually easy. You just need to make sure that you're working according to the relevant regulation. Where it's not easy is in the things that are not yet defined. For example, you can collect too much data in a very short period of time and to um, take down the server of the website that's hosting the data unintentionally okay? because others are also doing it. That's not a good thing. You, you're, you won't be able to collect data from that website because it's down. The users are unhappy because the website is down. The website owner is not happy because the website is down. No value whatsoever. And this is also an ethical consideration uh, which, which you know, comes together with professionalism and you know, knowing what you're doing. Uh, so there's a lot to do. It's not regulated enough, this part. The private data is heavily regulated. Everything else not regulated enough. Um, and we're trying as a company to push for it. And we see this trend also happening, especially in the UK. They're, they're listening. What sort of regulations do you think would be helpful in that sort of space? First of all, and, uh, acknowledging the problem. There is a problem. Um, internet traffic is currently structured for around 40% bot traffic. That's not a bad thing, okay? because generally speaking, automating processes is, is good, but uh, around 25% of this bot traffic is unethical. It's you know, doing even if legal things, just running bot traffic without thinking, without caring. So first of all, acknowledge, uh, acknowledging that there is an issue and there is an issue. That's the first thing. Second, just start creating some framework for measuring what's going on. After you have data, we're talking about data, then you can, you know, you don't need to think. The data, data tells the story. So you, you'll have this, you know, you'll map the issue, you'll map the, the problem with data, then it will be way easier to, uh, to realize what regulation should be in place. Thank you. We've got just under a minute left and we've got a really great question from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Great to have you with us again. Um, this is something that I've, I've been sort of hearing a lot more in, in sort of data circles recently, which is what are the energy implications of keeping so much data now and in the future? 
Wow, that's a great question. Um, but we are actually the data collectors, not the processors. So I don't know. Um, my customers are the ones who keep the data and it, that's heavy, heavy uh, expense, which also means heavy, a lot of energy to, to put into it. That's really a great question. Maybe I'll come ready to the next bit data bytes so that I'll present. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, oh, it's been great to have you back with us again today. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. And uh, just a reminder to everybody, you can um, put your questions via Slido whenever you'd like. We'll also be keeping an eye on hashtag IFGDataBytes on Twitter. Um, and now it's over to our second speaker this evening, Andrew, over to you. Yes, uh, thank you, Gavin. Um, and uh, I just want to say thank you to the man with the golden pun, uh, Gavin, for uh, the uh, in the uh, introduction and uh, the invitation to present a data bite. So um, I'm Andrew Engeli. I'm the Deputy Director for the Environmental Monitoring for Health Protection Program, um, aka Wastewater Monitoring, aka the Poo Crew. And I just want to talk you through today um, uh, some reflections on innovations in public health data um, in, in the context of the pandemic and then uh, the case study, uh, which I'll, I'll get to of wastewater. So, um, um, data challenges in a pandemic. Um, I think, you know, the, the, these four points I've put up here will be familiar to anybody operating the data space. So when we, we started the Joint Biosecurity Joint Biosecurity Center in May 2020, uh, we found that, of course, existing data sources at the beginning of the pandemic were not necessarily geared for rapid operational uh, pandemic response. Don't think that's a shock to anybody. You know, we have a data governance regime that's built around a wall between health and non-health data, and even the concepts of health and non-health data have been uh, called into question uh, during the pandemic. We've we witnessed a fragmentation of data platforms and data access regimes that was only accelerated by the response of many organizations and agencies to the pandemic. And I think as anybody who's been involved in data acquisition knows, data acquisition is traditionally a, a slow and laborious process. So what's data innovation? In the Joint Biosecurity Center, we developed what we called intelligence-led approach to data acquisition. So we tried to move away from a, a transactional approach to, to operate in a more strategic and operational space, and we stood up teams to do that. Uh, so the way we looked at it is we were creating a kind of translator or a bridge between the analytical needs of our uh, data, science, data scientists and our, analytic, and our analysts and, and the data themselves, and to help determine what we would see as the art of the possible. And to do that, we really started sort of regular dialogue with suppliers in order to map and discuss future need. And that's really been a core part of our strategy. And just one example I would use would be the, the use of mobility data. And there, mobility data is a class of data. It's not one data set to model scenarios for R. And the graphic on the right-hand side is actually from some of the modeling work we've done from mobility data showing scenarios for R um, within just one local authority area. Now, getting onto wastewater, um, I always talk about the great missing statistic of the pandemic, which is how many people actually have COVID. And I've just put up a sample of images here drawn from the internet. Uh, draw your attention to the one on the left-hand side there, COVID-19 in the UK, uh, taken from the uh, BBC, the BBC web portal. And I think it's actually, I love the BBC and fantastic statistical team, as we all know, fantastic data team, um, but it's mislabeled because it says how many coronavirus cases are there in my area? It doesn't actually mean that. What it actually means is how many known coronavirus 
coronavirus cases are then in the area validated through a PCR test, um, which is a slightly different thing. Um, and that sort of mislabeling is reproduced throughout the data space. And I think, you know, many public facing portals we've seen um, slightly misleading um, um, terminology used. Now, so how do we actually know how many people have got COVID? You know, well, really, we're working on estimation. We've got various techniques. Of course, we've got the COVID infection survey. And most of us will be familiar with that. That's an estimation technique. It's not an, uh, we're not observing cases. And of course, you know, we've got uh, various ways of looking at antibody, uh, you know, how many people got antibodies, those sorts of things. So wastewater testing them. Why does it matter? Um, I think most people now probably know that we are wastewater testing and you can take samples out of the sewer systems and wastewater treatment plants around the country, test that and we can find evidence of viral fragments in the wastewater. So uh, fecal shedding occurs in most people in the first 24 hours of viral acquisition. Uh, and what that means is that um, whether you're symptomatic, pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, we are going to find that virus discharged through all the viral fragments discharged through, through the sewer system. So currently we're operating around 500 sites across England, testing uh, at a community level covering about 40 million people. So wastewater-based epidemiology, WBE, has some very distinctive capabilities. It's low cost, it's non-invasive, and cru crucially, it obviates community testing bias. So the kind of biases that we find in surveys or um, uh, other testing methods, um, and even actually in on-the-ground clinical testing uh, are obviated in the, in the case of uh, wastewater testing. As I've mentioned, we detect uh, asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic cases. And so we, we began to look at this as a potential unbiased estimator of overall prevalence. And um, we are doing genome sequencing as well, but I won't get into that, but happy to ask, uh, answer any questions if, they, if that comes up. So these are the ways that we uh, show our data, and it has been quite complex to find graphical ways to show uh, the, the data insights that actually health protection teams can then use uh, to determine uh, local action on the ground. Um, and I would just want to draw attention to this slide here because this, I think, shows what we're really trying to aim for. On the left-hand side, you'll see uh, wastewater data mapped against Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 test and trace data, so that's clinical, known clinical cases. And as you can see across the period of the pandemic, we are beginning to track uh, very closely to uh, known cases. On the right-hand side, you'll see the same kind of data models uh, uh, trained against uh, the ONS COVID infection study that I've just mentioned. Now, this is the slide I really like here. Um, oh, this shows uh, lead lag times. And if you look at the left-hand side there, you'll, you'll see that actually the, um, uh, the best shift with uh, Pillar 1, Pillar 2 test and trace data is uh, about eight days, meaning that we are we are leading uh, known, known clinical cases, cases showing up in those data by about eight days. On the right hand side, you'll see that the shift with the ONS uh, CIS is actually zero, um, but we do actually um, get our data about seven days before the ONS data uh, are available and published. Now, that all sounds very promising. So I think, you know, that it just kind of try to give you a flavor of what uh, data innovation might look like. We've got lots of challenges in the data space. 
number one challenge we've got is sort of reliability built around uh, uh, level of detection um, levels of detection is quite a complicated uh, way of doing things. What you see in that graphic is actually all of the metadata that goes into producing one observation, one data point in our data sets, and actually is about 53 different parameters uh, that we need to um, we need to control or measure in order to be able to. Produce one data insight. We've got issues with levels of quantification. So, uh, how much of the virus needs to be in the sewer system before we can uh, actually pick it up? Just to give you a flavor there, we can pick up currently about if there's one case in about 20,000 people, we can actually pick that up in the in the sewer system. And of course, data privacy. And I'd be very happy to answer questions on that. Completely novel data source. Uh, the legal position is that this is not disclosive data. I will uh, talk about why that's the case if, if there are any questions on that um, but th that doesn't mean to say there aren't major ethical considerations so um, I'll leave it there and happy to answer any questions thank you very much indeed Andrew and um, my colleagues will now I've often had uh, cause to complain in four letter terms about the quality of data coming out of government but you've uh, definitely put a different spin on that phrase tonight I think um, just a reminder you can bring um, put all of your questions to Andrew using Slido uh, slidodb20bit.ly slidodb23 if you're not already on the page um, we've already got a question from Simon Rogers it's a specific one but I think it also opens up a sort of more general one um, Simon says um, You've hinted heavily that you're working in conjunction with Modern Water, a company, by offering real-time monitoring. Are you able to confirm this is the case? And I suppose the general question is, how have you been working with um, sort of partners in the private and, and public sector? Yeah, I can't talk specifically about uh, which industry partners we're working with, but I can confirm that obviously we're working with, it, it is a regulated industry and uh, obviously we work very closely with water companies. Um, we are doing a lot of work in the technology space and one of our ambitions is to uh, stand up real-time detection technology. That's only in prototype form right now. We've got some very promising pro prototypes. Again, I can't get too deeply into that. I think you'll all understand that. Um, but we we do believe that there's the potential for really a world leading tech sector here and our ambition is to bring what I think is everybody can agree a 19th century Victorian sewer system into the 21st century and to have a smart networked uh, automated uh, and real time detection system uh, that spans the uh, uh, that sewer system. Excellent, thank you. Um, so many questions I want to put to you. I don't know where to start. Um, you mentioned um, sort of in passing the sort of ethics of, of all of this. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about the, the sort of ethics of using um, this sort of data. Yeah, great question. Uh, we have done a lot of work around this. So we actually have had a pu public consultation. Uh, we um, we talked to 100 citizens in a convened uh, citizen panel. Uh, and we've got really positive uh, outcome from that. Once people began to understand what we actually do, we receive very, very high levels of approval. Uh, and in fact, sort of people say, well, yeah, th this looks like a no brainer. Why, why, why shouldn't we? You know, there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing this. And let me quickly explain. Um, I said it's not personal data and we talk about poo, but poo is the vehicle by which uh, the RNA uh, fragments get into the sewer system. Actually, we look at nothing 
human. So that poo dissolves. And if we do find any DNA in our samples, we discard that DNA. We look at viral RNA fragments. Um, and so in the most literal sense, we look at the virus and not the human beings who are actually uh, depositing that virus. And so in that sense, in the purest sense, it is not personal data. Now, of course, then uh, that that you know, how close do we get to source? That's really the the, the the question that, you know, people want to know. It's like, well, that, that all sounds well and good, but if you know the poo's coming out of my house, you probably think, it, you know. Um, and uh, the answer to that one is, is fairly simple. Um, it gets very hard to detect things the closer you get to a very small uh, <clears throat> to, to a very small number of people. So there is a sort of optimum size uh, of, of people, but um, it, to be frank about it, if you've got a house and you're interested whether people are in, in that house have the virus, uh, much better to knock on the door and just test them. Fascinating. Thank you. Um, we've got a question from Sam at MedConfidential. Evening to you, Sam. Um, the data dissemination register says there were um, only 18 data projects who got data from the NHS data store and DHSC has made much of contribution from Palantir. Um, how did those sort of high profile expensive platforms help or hinder your work during the pandemic? Uh, great question. Um, Again, I can't really comment on individual data stores or individual data platforms. I think I did mention that um, one of the uh, initial responses to the pandemic on the part of many organizations was to stand up ad hoc data platforms. I mean, we uh, different conversation, but I think we all recognize that uh, the data infrastructure across government may not have been exactly ready for a rapid pandemic response. Um, and so there have been a lot of challenges once that once that immediate fragmentation took place in a sort of um, a big bang almost, uh, then we had to start find, finding ways of knitting all of that together. And that's been a very complicated task. So, you know, but I think encouragingly there have been a number of initiatives across government. I think, you know, Bethan is just about to talk about the national data strategy and, you know, and will probably give us more insights into that. Um, but I think we all recognize that, um, that the pandemic has really uh, uncovered not only all the good things about our data infrastructure, but some of the uh, weaker parts of the data infrastructure. And uh, I'm sure we're going to be spending a lot of time uh, addressing those over the coming uh, months and years. Excellent, thanks. Um, we've got another question from Anonymous. What other diseases is this being considered for? Does there need to be a certain level of infection in the population for it to be detectable this way? Yep, great question. Um, the answer is that um, we're really excited because beyond the COVID, um, the same detection methods can be used for a wide range of pathogens and respiratory viruses. Uh, we can look at things like flu, norovirus, rotavirus, um, norovirus, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and we think this is a real, there's potential for a real revolution in health protection. And so just to lay out a little bit of what for me is the vision of the, the where we're going with this, you know, so the, the sort of who cares, the so what part of it is I think we are driving towards a situation where we can provide uh, not just health protection teams, and those are currently our, 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 our main customers, not just the NHS, which is a customer for us as well, um, but we can provide, for example, uh, real-time data to uh, the private sector, which, as we know, has had uh, real challenges in resourcing during the pandemic, pandemic, whatever demic we want to call it. Um, but even more than that, I think we can provide real-time data to people. So if we live in a world where guidance, uh, guidance around your how to keep you yourself, your family, your your loved ones safe. 
um, we can provide data that backs up that guidance and provides, I think, an evidence base by which individuals can make the decision. So for me, the analogy is the weather forecast, which is probably one of the biggest nudging uh, behavior changes. Uh, we don't even think about it, right? Um, and so I think we are driving towards a situation where we can actually uh, provide that sort of uh, data to uh, individuals. Um, and, and of course, to data companies, innovative data companies who can build products that I think will be um, reaching reaching individuals and citizens uh, over the coming decades. Thanks. We've got just over a minute left. I'll try and squeeze a few more questions in. Jay asks, how large an area do you investigate? Is this town, county or area who's responsible for acting on your results? And um, Anonymous asks a similar question. Is this uh, looking just acro across the UK or just England? Yeah, great question. Um, so our program is England because health is a devolved uh, matter, but we work very closely with our friends at SEPA, uh, Public Health Wales and uh, DERA in Northern Ireland. We're sharing protocols and approaches uh, and uh, we're looking to uh, build a coordinated UK-wide uh, surveillance uh, uh, sewage system, um, sewage surveillance system. So um, uh, that's 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 working with the devolved authorities. Um, in terms of the areas that we look at, we work in catchment areas. These are really, really complicated things. And in fact, I, I haven't even had a chance to talk about trying to map catchment areas against um, statistical building blocks. Just a quick observation is statistical building blocks. That's the way we do things. And we provide data to local authorities, for example. We do that because that's the administrative unit, but it's not the way people actually live. Quick. You know, if I walk out my door, I turn left, I go to Sainsbury's, I stay within my local authority area, I turn right, go to Waitrose, I cross a local authority boundary, you know, and I become a data point in a pandemic. Um, and sewer systems are really interesting because actually they reflect the way the communities were built up um, and they know no local authority boundaries. So, so yeah, we, we sample at um, wastewater treatment plants, but we also do what we call in-network in sampling, uh, which is more granular sampling and allows us to get down to smaller building blocks, um, typically around 14,000 people. Excellent. Well, I'm really sorry we can't squeeze in the final question that we had from Anonymous, which was, could or would it be used by authorities to monitor alcohol or illegal drug use in specific communities, which rose up lots of really interesting questions about how something like this could be misused. Sally, we don't have time. Um, but Andrew, thank you very, very much indeed. Um, and perhaps a, a lesson that, you know, using data from water means that if we're thinking about data infrastructure post-pandemic, we should think about how we build back wetter. Sorry. Um, you've already heard her trailed by both of our other speakers tonight. Um, it's time for our third speaker, Bethan. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks very much for having me here this evening. Uh, my name is Bethan Charnley. I'm head of the National Data Strategy Implementation Team at DCMS. I, I joined the team in January earlier this year from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation and the Government Digital Service before that. And today I want to give you a bit of an update on the National Data Strategy and in particular to talk to you about our work on monitoring and evaluating the strategy. Now, I'm sure everybody has read it cover to cover, but for those who haven't or maybe missed the memo, a quick reminder on what the National Data Strategy is. So published in September 2020, the National Data Strategy is the framework for action this government will take on data. It sets out the UK's ambitions in the space, creates a unified narrative, demonstrates a commitment to action. This slide sets out the, the National Data Strategy framework. Uh, it starts with at the top the opportunities um, that can be realized by better use 
uh, by better data use. At the bottom, it highlights the pillars of effective use, so barriers that we need to address in order to realise the opportunities. And right there in the centre are our five missions or priority areas of action. Um, now, we published the framework as a consultation um, last September, and which validated that the framework is fit for purpose, and we issued the government response in May this year. So why are we talking about it now? Well, it's the one year anniversary of the national data strategy, and we wanted to mark that by sharing an update on the progress we've made so far. And ever since we published, people have been asking questions like, will the NDS be a success? And uh, we decided to set out uh, to design a framework to help us answer that question. So on Friday, the 10th of September, we published our monitoring and evaluation update. And I'm going to talk you through the various different components of the update now. I'm going to start with a caveat though. Uh, monitoring and evaluation is really hard and you will know this if you've ever had to work on a project to do any form of monitoring or evaluation. And when I first started this project, me and the team, uh, we were a bit nervous that we were maybe doing something wrong. We were perhaps a bit inadequate, but um, the Institute for Government helpfully ran a round table uh, a number of months ago now on the subject of how to implement a national data strategy. And I personally found this round table very reassuring because consensus across a number of different experts was uh, if you're doing it right, it's probably very hard. Um, so we decided to lean into that challenge and give it a good shot, recognising that this is very much a first attempt on paper and that we will continue to iterate and improve over time. So in terms of where we started, um, we, we decided our starting principle would be let's use uh, the framework that we already got rather than build a new one. So that's what we did. And we've layered onto that framework three core components um, to our monitoring and evaluation framework, monitoring, tracking and evaluating. And we also identified a few more overarching principles. Um, we wanted our framework to be dynamic and forward-looking, wanted it to be outcome-oriented and finally proportionate. So let's go through these um, segments in turn, starting with monitoring. So as I mentioned, uh, the five missions of the national data strategy are our priority areas of action and the way we're structuring our implementation programme of work. Uh, we've made a huge amount of progress over the last year, delivering on the key commitments made in the original NDS publication. Um, if you want the full details on that, please do go to the publication, uh, which summarises this. Uh, here's a bit of a flavour a flavor in front of you. Uh, I won't go through this all now, um, but under each of the missions, some of our, some of our highlights. Uh, under mission two, I will draw your attention to this um, and make an exception because, uh, as has been mentioned on the call already, we recently launched a consultation on the future of the UK's data protection regime, and this is open until the 19th of November. So please do uh, share your thoughts with us, and hopefully we can come to a future data bytes uh, to talk about this in more detail as well. So on monitoring, we provide an update on each of these five missions, a progress report, some might say. Uh, and then we started to think about how we might want to, to do some tracking. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, or as you all know, data policy is a very nascent policy area, and it will be a while before we can evaluate government interventions in the space in a really meaningful way. So in the interim, we wanted to at least understand the health of the ecosystem, bringing together a suite of high level indicators around the data opportunities and the data pillars. So uh, for the opportunities, uh, we decided we first of all needed to identify the data drivers. So how does something like we've got an opportunity like data better used can boost trade, but specifically what is it about data that will help us do that? And we started to, to map these out um, as an indicator set. 
Uh, this was really hard, as I mentioned in my caveat. And as we started pulling together these indicators, we realized that there are actually quite a lot of gaps. There's not a lot of data about data was one of the big conclusions that we found in this work. But we decided to call this out in a structured way. Um, so uh, identifying where, where there is good data, there are good metrics, um, but where there also isn't current research. So we did this um, for each of the opportunities and we also did this um, for the pillars as well. Um, I'm confident that um, we'd validated the challenge, um, but couldn't, <laughs> uh, and that it wasn't just our, our inadequacy, hopefully at least, we decided to lean into this evidence gap and launch a call for views. Um, and we know that in this indicator suite will likely be useful for a number of different stakeholders and something that could be co-created. So this call for views, which will be open till Friday the 3rd of December, essentially invites you to help us fill in the gaps in that framework. And what I'm particularly excited about is, is the prospect that where we identify gaps, if we validate them and we find out, in fact, there is no data, then we'll have the potential to potentially uh, create new data and to fill those gaps as well and commission new work, which is really exciting. So the final part of the framework then is evaluation, or I should probably say kind of thinking about evaluation and evidence. So there's a lot of evidence gaps. Um, when it comes to thinking about data, we're still at a relatively early stage. And so what we focused on is filling those evidence gaps. Um, here's a flavor of some of our own publications um, over the last 12, uh, nine months um, with more to come and lots of great work being done independently by stakeholders. But building out this evidence base will help us to develop our overall approach to monitoring, monitoring and evaluation more broadly. And looking forward, we'll be working with each of the mission teams to develop longer term evaluation plans, which we'll um, create with them depending on exactly what, what sits beneath their mission. Uh, very quickly, uh, we wrap up the monitoring and evaluation update by highlighting our next steps. Two main uh, components that sit under this. First of all, uh, we're going to spend a lot more time thinking about the future and horizon scanning. So the consultation we ran at the end of the last year uh, validated that the NDS framework focused on broadly the right things uh, for now, but it's already a year old and data policy moves very quickly, as does the wider landscape. So we're really going to double down on thinking about how it needs to evolve to remain fit for purpose. And part of that will be um, setting up a new data horizon scanning knowledge hub within DCMS and to start to monitor these trends and embed future thinking in, in all of the work that we do. Um, the final point uh, in terms of next steps is we said from the beginning that government cannot and should not deliver the national data strategy alone. And in the consultation, you told us about the importance of continuing to engage a diverse range of stakeholders throughout implementation. So in the government response, uh, we announced the creation of the National Data Strategy Forum to bring together diverse perspectives, to challenge and champion the national data strategy, to develop collaborative programs of work and help shape the future vision for the strategy as well. Uh, just uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, we have announced and um, published detailed work plans um, for the NDS forum over the next couple of months on our five priority themes that, that are set out here. Um, we're really excited to work with um, stakeholders on these and there's more information on how to get involved on gov.uk. Um, please do sign up to our newsletter. Oh, there you go. There's my alarm. Um, get sign up to our newsletter, get involved with the NDS forum and respond to our live consultations and um, really looking forward to continuing the conversation.
Thank you very much, Beth, and almost perfect timing. I think that's the first time we've had somebody's alarm go off. That's brilliant. Um, just a reminder to everybody, we've got some great questions coming in already, but you can use Slido to put your questions to Bethan. And if you're not already on the Slido page, it's bit.ly slash slidodb23. So our first question, uh, it's a fun one from Sam from Med Confidential. Um, the new DCMS data consultation is proposing legalisation of some data processing that the Information Commissioner's Office has previously deemed unlawful. Do you have a favourite data breach that you'd like DCMS to be able to include in a future update? That is a very fun question. Uh, thanks, Sam, for sharing. Um, I'm not sure I personally um, have a favourite uh, a data breach, but um, that's certainly one one I can take away. I wish I had at the tip of my tongue a James Bond pun that I could tie together with a data breach um, for this occasion, but, but leave that with me and I can take it away. Thank you very much. And as Bethan said, we're hoping to hear more from DCMS about that uh, consultation in future data bytes as well. Um, we've got a question from Anonymous uh, who asks, what would you say the most successful NDS commitments that have been delivered so far? Oh, that's a that's a really uh, brilliant question. I think there's so much that's going on under the banner of the national data strategy and the work within each of the five different missions is is so diverse. Um, it would be hard to say uh, kind of one or, or two things um, that are really stand out in terms of most successful. You know, I have a few personal favourites that I'm really excited about. Um, it's been brilliant to see so much progress under some of the commitments around um, algorithmic transparency, for example, and some brilliant public engagement work that's been led between the um, Central Digital and Data Office and the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, going out, doing public engagement on this, uh, user testing. I think that's been really fantastic to see. Also been lots of really exciting stuff happening in the international space um, in terms of uh, various different G7 commitments around the free flow of data with trust as well, which I think is really exciting to see that work on an international stage as well. So just a couple of examples, but but really so much, um, so much to be proud of across the whole portfolio. Excellent. That um, mention of public engagement brings us very nicely to the next sort of set of questions. Um, Anonymous asks, could you tell us more about the NDS Forum? It sounds like a fantastic initiative. It would be great to learn how you find participants and manage the whole process. A different anonymous probably asks, how can we get involved in the forum? And yet another anonymous um, says, great progress on this strategy. Is it correct that all governments in the UK have their own data strategies? And is the forum the place where they will be coordinated? So lots of lots of forum questions there. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks, Gavin. And uh, really appreciate the enthusiasm for the NDS forum as well. Um, so the way the forum is structured is we don't have a fixed membership. We um, are interested in understanding who is interested in getting involved in various different conversations that are happening under the banner of the NDS forum. So um, on gov.uk, we've published work plans that sit under each of the five priority themes, and they all look slightly different in shape and size, depending on what the theme is. So for example, one of the themes is around unlocking the power of data for everyone everywhere and that will be a kind of series of regional events which are looking to shine the light on on best practice um, use um, locally and thinking about how that can be scaled more broadly under data reform we're working with partners across the data ecosystem to convene roundtable discussions on various aspects of the consultation um, but there's more information on our landing page uh, for the national data strategy forum on gov.uk which spells out really clearly how you can get involved 
Uh, second part of your question, Gavin, about kind of um, within the UK, all of the different data strategies exist. We actually have a separate forum for this. We, we do love a forum uh, in the National Data Strategy team. Uh, we coordinate the National Data Strategy Devolved Administration Advisory Forum, where we bring together representatives from each of the devolved nations to um, coordinate and, and discuss um, the implementation of respective data strategies. And that convenes bi-monthly, uh, and our team provides a secretariat for that, and it's provided a a really good um, a vehicle for bringing together conversations and thinking about where we can be doing more to collaborate uh, on common issues as well. Excellent. Well, I've got a report coming out this week for the Open Data Institute, which tries to map all those data institutions, and that one's a new one on me, so I'm going to have to make sure we add it uh, before we publish. Um, we've got about four minutes left, so do keep your questions uh, coming to Bethan. Um, Bethan, you mentioned um, the sort of roundtable that we, we did a few months back, um, which at times felt like group therapy for people who'd encountered similar problems when it came to trying to evaluate and monitor data strategies. Are there any examples, other governments, other parts of the public sector, and um, parts of the private sector, voluntary sector that you've been learning from, particularly as you've been doing this work? Yeah, thanks, Gavin. It's a good question. I think I think there is a lot to learn when it comes to monitoring and evaluation and, th and thinking about um, what good looks like. I think often, though, you can learn as much about what good doesn't look like. And I think by, by looking out at different examples, it certainly started to shape our thinking and, and a couple of examples of that in terms of different models that we worked through and, and tested with stakeholders and got feedback on. Um, one example would be thinking about setting targets um, and metrics being very clearly defined of, you know, let's let's take, for example, skills, you know, getting some challenge around, should we be putting a target on this, you know, however many people we want to have upskilled with a certain, certain skill set. Um, and obviously, some strategies have used that approach to, um, to measure success. And we actually felt like within the data policy context, that perhaps wasn't the best way to go. We wanted to leave it more open. We wanted um, to, to get a better sense of, of the overall ecosystem rather than honing in on very precise metrics, which wouldn't necessarily um, tell us much about the actual success of our work or the actual health of the ecosystem. Um, but I think absolutely looking at what others have done to try and understand what would work well in a data policy context and what wouldn't work well in a data policy context is really interesting. Um, and I do think data policy is a bit different. And this is one of the things that we discussed uh, at the roundtable discussion with IFG, you know, is implementing a data strategy different from implementing any other kind of strategy? And we decided, well, I think there was a bit of mixed consensus, um, but there were certainly views that actually there is something different about data because we're not we don't do work on data as a means and ends to itself we're trying to achieve something better we're trying to um realize all of these opportunities to to improve um kind of outcomes across society and the economy this is not about achieving something specifically on data but realizing those wider benefits and i think that um that wider context had to play into our approach as well so that was quite interesting Excellent, thank you. We've got just over a minute left. So I'm going to combine a question that's just coming from Sam with one that I was going to ask. Um, Sam asks, what does success look like for all of this? And I suppose my, my question related to that is what happens after this consultation closes on 3rd of December? What's next? Thanks, Gavin. So I, th I think a few different things in terms of what success looks like, and, and we'll be able to build this picture up over time. So I think at the monitoring level, you know, success looks like 
government has delivered on the commitments it set out in the initial strategy, which is, is no small feat. There was quite a lot in there. So I think if we can do that and show that we've done that, that's what success looks like. Ideally, we'll add to that as well. I think from a tracking perspective, success will look like are these indicators that we've defined moving in the right direction? Probably, first of all, do we have a full set of indicators that will tell us about the health of the ecosystem? When we have them, are these signals moving in the right direction or a direction that we deem positive? And that's what success will look like. And then ultimately, what we'd obviously love to be able to do is develop detailed evaluation plans um, for each of the five different missions. Um, but that will be more or less appropriate, depending on where, where that mission is in its scoping, in understanding what the government intervention is etc but being able to articulate success in that evaluation context as well um, to answer the second question Gavin uh, in terms of next steps when the consul consultation or call for views really closes on the 3rd of December we'll obviously be working um, with our analysts internally to um, have a look at the various different responses think about how our indicator suite can evolve um, as a result of the inputs that we've received uh, from stakeholders through that call for views um, and we'll hope to be publishing it we're not doing a formal consultation response it's not a consultation but we'll be looking to put out an update in January sort of summarizing what we've learned through the call for views what that means for our monitoring and evaluation framework and then signaling um, to kind of further updates coming throughout the year if you'll remember in our in our formal government response to the NDS consultation we said we'd be taking a phased approach to future publications giving updates um, on the on the various different um, missions as and when it was appropriate um, but certainly trying to bring together a bit of a drumbeat around monitoring and evaluation as well. Fantastic. Well, Bethan, we could go on for at least one more slot of eight minutes, if not more. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll continue to talk about this over the next few months. But thank you very much indeed for updating us. Thank you. Thanks, Gavin. Um, and apologies to Sam Roberts, who asked a really good question at the end, which was, um, are there any potential, high potential or nascent areas you've spotted that aren't currently covered by the National Data Strategy that the NDS might expand into? That might be one for next time. Um, last but certainly not least, it's over to our fourth speaker tonight and our 99th different Databyte speaker across the whole series, Patrick. Uh, good evening and uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, speak today. I'm Patrick Royce. I'm an energy engineer at Bayes and I'll be speaking about the My2050 calculator for exploring pathways to net zero, uh, for which I was the project manager. And I thought I'd start by giving you a little bit of background context in case you're not that close to energy. Uh, the Climate Change Act of 2008 set the first legally binding target for the UK to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The target was for an 80% reduction in emissions compared with 1990 levels. And in 2010, the 2050 calculator was launched to aid public engagement on emissions reduction. It was an online interactive tool for creating pathways to decarbonisation. And it was the idea of the late Sir David Mackay, who was the DEC CSA at the time. And something like 100,000 members of the public engaged with the uh, 2050 calculator. Uh, and the concept was adopted by many other countries. But in 2019, the uh, Climate Change Act was amended to set a new target of net zero emissions by 2050. And so Bayes saw a need to develop a new 2050 calculator. The new calculator consists of one energy system model which can be driven 
by using one of two online interactive tools. The tool on the left is called My2050, and it's intended to help understanding of net zero and is aimed at the general public and education. And the one on the right, the Mackay Carbon Calculator, is a more detailed tool uh, for energy stakeholders to create pathways to net zero. And it includes a net zero pathway or example pathway, which was referenced in the Energy White Paper and created by the Energy Systems Catapult. Uh, links to the tool are shown at the bottom, uh, but you can also find the tools by searching My2050 or Mackay Carbon Calculator. I thought it'd be worth telling you a little bit about the model that sits behind the calculator. Um, a key change from the original calculator is the model is actually demand driven. So the model only supplies enough energy to meet demand that is specified. When there's an imbalance between supply and demand because of the choices made by the user, the model uses a priority order in order to decide which sources of supply to use but the user can override this priority order. The model was a collaborative effort between BASE and partners. It was subjected to uh, beta testing internally versus government sector models, and it was tested by uh, partner organisations. It uses published data taken from sources such as Duke's and uh, UK Times model, and um, it has data and assumptions that are referenced within the model, and it's free to download from the gov.uk carbon calculator site in the interests of transparency. So moving on to My2050 itself, its purpose, as I mentioned, is to um, help understanding of net zero. It was My2050 was launched in December 2020 by the uh, Minister for Base, the Right Honourable Kwasi Kwarteng, who's now uh, Secretary of State for Base. And to make it user friendly, it agglomerates 160 model levers into just 15 user controls or levers. It's got an interactive animation to aid visualization um, and was designed to be accessible. It invites users to uh, choose the ambition level for decarbonization for each of those 15 levers. And that ranges from level one, which was, is minimal effort to decarbonize, to level four, which is maximum effort. The definition of these levels of ambition was arrived at through a series of stakeholder workshops, which involved a group of over 100 energy stakeholders. So at the bottom of the slide are links to the My2050 tool itself, the gov.uk carbon calculator page, and the calculator mailbox, if you uh, be, be interested. Um, but I now would like to give you a quick demonstration of the tool and how it works. So My2050 invites you to make choices about the future in 2050 and see the effect on greenhouse gas emissions. It opens with instructions on how to use the tool to create a pathway to net zero. The objective is to use the sliders or levers at the bottom of the screen to try to get to net zero in the meter on the right. The meter on the right shows UK greenhouse gas emissions in 2050 as a percentage reduction relative to 1990. So the top of the meter is 1990 and the bottom of the meter uh, is net zero or minus 100%. And clicking on the screen starts the animation, which interacts with the levers at the bottom. 
the tool opens with all the levers set to uh, level one as default. And um, level one is minimal ambition to decarbonize. And that is actually slightly worse than where we're at now. The 15 levers are grouped by energy sector under the headings transport, buildings, industry, low carbon electricity and land and bioenergy. For example, the transport levers for transport are travel demand, light vehicles and uh, heavy vehicles. To get more information about what a particular lever does, hovering over the lever icon um, causes a pop up to describe what the lever uh, represents. And if you click on the lever icon, it brings up an information page with more information about uh, that lever, what it, uh, what it encompasses and what the levels of ambition are. For each lever can be set to one of four levels of decarbonisation effort. And this ranges from, as I mentioned, level one, minimal effort to decarbonise, to level four, which is extreme effort or maximum effort. And there are tool tips for the sliders that show you what each of these levels represent. So if we take light vehicles, for example, level one is there are almost no electric cars, um, which isn't very far from where we're at at the moment. There are a few percent of electric cars. But if we go to level four, or if you set the lever to level four, that is assuming that by 2050, all cars will be electric and indeed we'll have scrappage schemes to remove any re remaining diesel and petrol cars from the road. And which ambition you choose affects what's shown in the animation. So all the cars have gone electric. And uh, it also affects the reading in the meter, which gets you that little bit closer to net zero. So the idea of the tool really is to find a combination of levers that are going to get you to net zero. And uh, you can cheat and set everything to the maximum, and that will get you to net zero quite quickly. But if you read what those maxima represent, you'll realise that's not really a very practical pathway forwards. But the idea of the tool is, is, a, is, is, is to be entertaining, but at the same time to uh, hopefully uh, enable users to learn something about the leaves of decarbonisation. Um, see how high the ambition needs to be in order to reach net zero, how levers interact and what you at an individual level can do in certain areas to help us towards net zero. There is a results button that gives you uh, graphical results for emissions and energy supply and demand. Um, in both results graphs, there is a counterfactual in grey. In one case, it's all level one for emissions and in the case of the energy demand, the counterfactual is 2015 energy use. Uh, we're currently working with the Royal Geographic Society, Geographical Society, sorry, to engage with key stage four geography teachers on the use of the tool as a classroom aid. Um, I'll stop at that point because I think my time is, uh, I've gone a little over time, my apologies for that, and uh, I'll uh, be happy to answer any questions. Fantastic, Patrick. Thank you very much indeed. Great to have a demo. I think it's been a while since we've had one of those on Databytes. Um, and just a reminder to everybody, if you would like me to put your question to Patrick, you can use Slido. And if you're not already on Slido, it's bit.ly slash SlidoDB23. Um, Patrick, I want to sort of start um, where you 
ended almost, which was you were talking about the importance of making it entertaining. And I think one of the struggles that people working with data often have is how to bring those numbers, those you know, numbers in cells in spreadsheets to life. Um, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about um, how the user testing uh, that you mentioned sort of played into that and sort of how, how you tried different things and worked out what worked for people. Well, to, to be perfectly honest with the tool, the user testing was fairly limited. And part of the reason was because um, the tool was based on a concept or at least a, an overall concept that had been used in uh, Belgium in schools education. And um, and uh, and uh, had also there had been a lot of schools engagement done through that tool. Um, so the honest answer is that um, in developing the calculator, we didn't do a lot of schools engagement. I suppose it would probably be fair to say our, our, our engagement is happening right now, in fact, through the current uh, teacher engagement that we're doing with the Royal Geographical Society and uh, also with some schools outreach that we're doing. Um, but, uh, you know, and in due course, this isn't fixed in stone and in due course, depending on the feedback that comes back from that, uh, there may be uh, further developments we make for the calculator. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that really the concept of the calculator in term, as a vehicle for, for you know, engagement on pathways to net zero was established through our original 2050 calculator. And the value in an educational setting was established by um, uh, the, to the, the evidence that colleagues in Belgium were able to provide us with on, on a similar design of tool that they'd used, although the tool here obviously has been adapted for the UK situation. Excellent, thank you. And um, just to follow up on one of those points, you mentioned the sort of Belgian example. Were there any other similar projects, um, whether on climate uh, net zero or something completely different that you saw across UK government or elsewhere that, um, that sort of inspired your work? Or was that the main sort of example? If, for the purposes of my 2050, it was the main example. For the purposes of the calculator itself, the 2050 calculator itself, as I mentioned, the, there was an original calculator that in concept was launched in 2010. The, the new calculator we developed was an entirely new model. Um, the, the, but the calculator concept in terms of levels of ambition and using those to find a pathway to net zero uh, had been established. And in, indeed, the original calculator developed in the UK has spread to, I believe it's now over 50 countries around the world. And in the vast majority of those countries just have the detailed version, so the energy stakeholder version. And some of those countries have actually gone as far as to use it for to set, for example, NDCs for their IPCC commitments. But um, national, that's nationally determined contributions. Um, but there aren't very many countries who that, that had a kind of more universal version that is easier to engage with. And of the few examples that we saw, uh, myself and the steering team felt that the Belgian uh, take on it was in fact the, the most interesting one and they were happy to work with us. Excellent, thank you. We've got some great questions coming in. Um, I'm going to start with um, another one from Sam from Ed Confidential. Is there anything interesting to say about drawdown of atmospheric CO2 considered in the discussions about the update and what can go beyond that level? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's probably fair to say the original calculator, 2050 calculator, couldn't actually get to net zero. And part of the reason it couldn't get to net zero is because it didn't really have some of the levers you're going to need in order to enable that to happen. Now, the difference between 80% um, 
CO2 reduction or greenhouse gas reduction and 100% may not sound like a lot, but it's a little bit like sitting in an exam. It's very hard to get that last few percent. And uh, it, the same is true of uh, CO2, uh, you know, greenhouse gas reduction. Um, so the consequence is in order to be able to reach net zero, what you need to have is what are called negative emissions, uh, such as uh, CO2 capture from the air, direct air capture. Um, and you need those in order to compensate for the emissions that you really cannot prevent in other areas. But the evidence so far is capturing CO2 from the air is going to be very expensive. Uh, and um, it's only something you would want to do for a very small proportion of your emissions. So a much better strategy is to simply reduce your emissions. And the way you reduce your emissions are pri is primarily about reducing fossil fuel burning, in particular by electrifying whatever demand you can electrify, for example, electric vehicles, electric heat pumps, electric boilers in industry. And if there's anything left over that you can't actually decarbonize, and there are a couple of hard to decarbonize areas, in particular agriculture and aviation, um, then you, know, you may need negative emissions for those. But you also, particularly in the case of aviation, should uh, think about perhaps looking to reduce demand for it rather than trying to find a sticking plaster to try to fix what is a very difficult to decarbonize sector. Excellent, thank you. Another sort of technical question um, following on from that. Stephen asks, does the calculator aim to model the full extent of scope three emissions? Um, it, it, I believe it, no, it, in answer to your question, I'm afraid I'm not a, 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 that's not my particular area of expertise, but I think if what you're saying is scope three emissions is emissions in the supply chain, it, it's probably worth saying the calculator models UK territorial emissions. So if they are emissions from the UK supply chain, then they are captured. But if they are emissions associated with imports, then those emissions sit with the country doing the manufacturing. So uh, it is true to say that if you if you were to look at the UK economy as a whole, we have emissions associated directly, you know, UK territorial emissions, but we also have emissions associated with imports that we make. Um, those additional emissions are uh, are managed by or tracked, I should say, by DEFRA rather than my own department, Bayes. Uh, they, they represent roughly an additional third of emissions, but I mean, certainly they're a factor to be considered. They're not insignificant and uh, there's quite a lot of work going on in this area. I'm not directly involved in it, but quite a lot of work going on in this area to start trying to understand what emissions are associated with those imports and how we're going to track them. Excellent, thanks. We've got a minute left, so I'm going to squeeze in one final question. We've got two to choose from, which is a shame because they're both extremely good. Um, Jay asks, how do you envisage this being rolled out to the public? Um, they say that schools are obviously a great place to start, but adults are the consumers with most reason to change. Well, that's a that's an interesting take, take on it. I think there's a, there's a um, 
the, the original calculator had a quite a significant campaign to go with it when it was launched. And I have to confess, I, I had hoped there would be a more active campaign associated with our calculator, but that, that hasn't come about, or at least not to date. And um, so the, the, the focus for the My 2050 tool was, a prim I felt, primarily around schools. And the reason for that was simply that young people are the ones who are going to inherit the world in 2050. They may not be the ones spending the money right now, but they will be the ones spending the money quite soon. And because they're the ones who are going to be inheriting the world in 2050, they have rather more of an interest in making sure we get to net zero by then. Well, Patrick, that's been fascinating. And I'm sure like many of the people watching, I'm looking forward to playing with the My2050 calculator, uh, having learned all about it. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. So um, it's just now time for some final parish notices before I let you go off into the evening. Um, first of all, do join us for virtual drinks. Keep me and the other regulars company. And I suppose enjoy that while it lasts, because who knows, at some point we might actually end up uh, going back to in-person drinks. Um, so hopefully the details are coming up on the screen now uh, that will tell you how to join us for drinks. Now, of course, the spectre at the feast tonight I was bound to do that one at some point, um, has been government's data protection consultation, which we touched on. Um, IFG is one of a number of organisations in civil society and elsewhere supporting um, that process through events. And if you go to the DCMS NDS forum page, which Bethan talked about, um, that will include um, some public events um, as part of that, including from the Ada Lovelace Institute, the Centre for Data Innovation and the Data and Marketing Association. There's also been lots of other data related stuff going on at the Institute for Government. Uh, you can catch up on events uh, which include looking at data use uh, during the pandemic and digital government from the Labour Conference and the Conservative Conference on the IFG website. Uh, Parliamentary Monitor, one of the IFG's big data reports was out last month. Performance Tracker, one of the other big ones will be out in a few weeks time. Details of the launch event on the IFG website. Um, IFG has also published a report looking at the transparency of different government departments um, over the last few years um, in the last few weeks. So do take a look at that as well. If you've not had enough of Gavin's at IFG events this week, uh, we're hosting Gavin Barwell, former Chief of Staff to Theresa May on Friday. And we'll also be having an event with the outgoing Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham at the end of the month. Uh, do remember that Databytes 24 where our first speaker that evening will be our 100th Databyte speaker, will be taking place on Wednesday the 3rd of November, so do join us for that. All that remains then uh, is for me to say three very big thank yous. First of all, to all of you for coming along tonight and asking some great questions as ever. To Bright Data for supporting their second Databytes event, thank you to them. And join me in a virtual round of applause for our four fantastic speakers this evening. I hope you've enjoyed a real variety of, uh, of different projects this evening. Hopefully see you at drinks. If not, see you next month. Thank you very much for joining us. Good night. <laughs>